Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Write or Die show. I'm your host, Randy Lee Boslaw. On the show, we interview other writers and we talk about mental health from their personal journeys. If you have not already hit that like and subscribe button, go ahead, do that now so that you never miss an episode. So today with us, we have Matt Garnier. Hello. Hello, Randy. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Where are you visiting us from? I'm in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I have never been. Um, and I am geographically inept, so I'm not entirely yeah. sure how well, far you know, we it's, are. It's not really a tourist destination. It's more of kind of a military populated town okay. an hour from Raleigh. And I've also okay. lived there. So yeah, North Carolina is treating me pretty well. Excellent. All right. So tell us a little bit about who Matt is. Well, that's a philosophical question, isn't it? It totally is. It's the uh, hardest <laughs> one of the whole interview. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it's generous to presume that I'm qualified to answer that. But um, you know, I've, I, I do a lot of different things with my life. So it's sort of, uh, always an experiment in progress to figure out what exactly I am right now. I'm strongly identifying as an author, of course, uh, my digital footprint would also indicate that I create in a lot of different formats, uh, video, you know, some comedic stuff, some, some podcasts in my history currently a mortgage loan officer, which really does not get to the heart of who I am. Mm -hmm. but, uh, That's not very creative. Yeah, right. But it's all over the place. And that that might actually be okay. a better, better uh, summary of who I am a bit of a bit of a contradiction, though not terribly contradictory. That's a contradiction all within itself. <laughs> Isn't it so meta? Oh, okay, so that's but that's what you do. But like, who are you? Okay, well, now if we're going to get into the existentialist semantics, we are, which I like, uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if, if we reduce, you know, if we, if we subtract what we do, I guess we're really just consciousness, right? So, so, uh, but I'm like, are us, you a pet owner or, oh, okay, like, okay. you know, like the fun facts, the fun stuff we want to know. <laughs> You know, you you might be surprised how few things I'm actually uh, interested in on a on a basic level when it comes to like what what I what I like and what I um, build my life around besides creating things. I don't have pets. I live in a house by myself, uh, and you know, I, I like I really do. I just live for good conversations. This is kind of it right here. I like to just get into why we do the things we do. Okay. Um, See, that, that's more about who you are, you know? Sure, yeah. And I, I guess uh, to, to build off a humorous anecdote that I wrote about, um, I, I remember when I was a kid, I was in this uh, doctor's office where I would soon be diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, which was probably the easiest diagnosis the man ever made. And, and there was this poster on the wall that said, it had like a, you know, a stock photo of a smiling, happy kid. And it said, I'm not my OCD. And I remember thinking like, I really identify with the disorderly part of me. It's kind of hard to think I'm not my OCD. Yeah. So, you know, compared to, compared to identifying with a malady, I guess identifying is just a, a, a nebulous um, character in the world isn't, isn't the worst thing. Although maybe, maybe my difficulty answering that question suggests I'm an alien symbiote who, who just occupied a, a suburban white kid's body as an experiment. Who knows? That would be really cool. I've never had one of those on the show. 
Well, you never know. I hey, I'm I'm not saying I am or I am not. Well, know? because you can't give away your cover, right? Or I might not even know. Ooh, this this just got really in depth and like very X Files. Yeah, but it went pretty out there for nine thirty a.m., didn't I? It did. It did. Um, I'm okay with that though. Okay, so before we move on, when you were saying about seeing that quote on the wall about not identifying as your OCD. Yeah. I have been saying for a very long time, and I put this in, in I guess not my last book now, because one just came out, my last, last book. Anyways, um, and I wrote, I have depression, depression doesn't have me. So like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I see something similar. Yeah, but you know what? I There's been times when I was like, no, depression definitely has me. Um, yeah. And, and I, I do hear some people say like, uh, you know, depression can't be connected to a particular cause. It just happens. You know, there's, you can't fix it. Um, th that part might be debated, but I don't know. I think, I think it's worth at least trying to connect it to something where you could say, Hey, like, I'm not responsible for the fact that I have this feeling necessarily, but mm -hmm. I do want to see what constructive things I could do to alter my situation, my reality, and, and at least treat it as a fight worth fighting, even though at the end yeah. of the day, of course, you know, like there's, there's going to be things beyond your control and accepting it is a big part of the battle as well. Oh, for sure. There's definitely things that will trigger it. And then there's days that I'm like, Hey, nothing, nothing triggering happened, but, um, I'm still feeling it. Huh. Yeah. That's, that's very real, you know, but there are, there are definitely some things that are triggering. And knowing those does help to manage and cope when they do arise. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been a lifelong back and forth for me. And I, I think like learning to recognize what those things are makes it less frightening maybe than it was when I was younger. Yes. And, and at this point in my life, I can sort of predict when, you know, depression or anxiety or panic is, is uh, approaching, or at least when it's happening, I know when I'm that I'm likely to be out of the woods at a certain point and that this is a cycle that repeats itself, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it will pass. Um, or at least that, 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 that construct of reality is not necessarily more valid than my, than my rational thoughts. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to have to remember that because there's definitely when, when you're in it, it can be so hard to be like, I will eventually come out of this. Oh, it feels, it feels nearly impossible. Yeah. Exactly. Especially for those listening that maybe they're experiencing it for the first time, right? I I'm, might have some teenagers on here and, you know, maybe you're in it right at this moment. Because I know as a teenager, I was like, this must be how everyone feels. Everyone must hate themselves and hate their life and think that they should die. Um, right. No, <laughs> that yeah, is yeah. not how everyone feels. But when you're in it that very first time and you don't have the words to express it or you don't hear other people talking about it. How are you supposed to know? Yeah, that, that solidarity definitely helps knowing that it's something that, you know, others can identify with, not that you would wish it on anyone else, but, um, but yeah, I, I definitely feel for people who are going through that, you know, for the first time or whatever. A lot of people, I think they, you know, they don't have their first panic attack until adulthood. And for me, like I had, I had them from a very early age. And so I, I became accustomed to it not that that makes it easier necessarily but like mm -hmm. you know by adulthood i knew how to how to function through it and and but i i understand why people 
you know, they, they suddenly have a panic attack in their 20s and they call for an ambulance because it's like, what the heck is this? My brother had a panic attack. So I was four years younger than him. So I was in high school. He would have just gotten out. He maybe was 19, 20 at the time. So I was 15, 16 at the time. And we were home. It was a weekend. It was nice out. So it must have been summertime. And I remember him running into my room going, what's the address? Because he didn't live at the house with us. Um, and so I told him. And he's like racing around the house. And he called 911. And it was a panic attack. But he had never had one before. He yeah. really thought he was dying. He thought he was having a heart attack. And that was my first experience with panic attacks. I haven't really had one myself, but visually seeing someone have it, that was my first experience. And it's like really just drilled into my brain that moment when, you know, they first the fire truck gets there, of course. They're always first. Yeah. Um, my brother's <laughs> like freaking out. And yeah, it can, it was very scary because I didn't know what it was. He told me he felt like he was dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've never described it quite that way, but I get what people are saying because of of all the things that it feels like I'll never recover from. Like that that's the that's the tagline I would associate with panic attacks the most. Okay. Like you just you don't once you feel this thing happening, you don't feel like it's ever gonna end. Okay. Like reality just hit a new low and there's no recovery. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I am knock on wood. I have never experienced one myself, but I have seen others do it. Um but after that first time with my brother, it gave me a little bit, at least a little bit of understanding about them. So now as an adult, when I see them happening, because um, my kid actually gets them all the time. He had oh, his first man. one. He was like, he was little. He was like, I don't even know, four maybe? Like little. Hmm. Um, took him to the hospital because I was like, why is my four-year-old saying he's dying? Um, but really, so then it was putting words to it, I think really helped, especially for him at a young age to be like, I'm not dying. I'm having a panic attack. Mom, I need help. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's valuable. I, I didn't have the words for it until, um, some other people close to me got the diagnosis. I was like a teenager then I was like, Oh, that's the thing that I've, that I've had all this time. And yeah. I mean, I, I knew it was a thing. I didn't have any clinical words for it, but I, I got to the point where I knew like, this is a condition of some sort, you know, mm -hmm. before I was 10. Um, and then, you know, there were events that I don't think would be objectively considered traumas, but to me, they were traumatic that sort of stirred that up into a frenzy where that was like, you know, a, a daily reality. So uh, it's definitely, definitely wired with uh, a sensitive set of cards. <laughs> and, and that's just that everyone's wired differently. And I like how you said objectively, somebody else might not see it as trauma. And that is so key is that it doesn't matter what other people view your life as or what other people view potential traumas in your life as, it matters how you view it for that experience to either be or not be a traumatic experience that kind of sticks with you for a really long time. Right, right. Yeah, so that's been kind of an interesting point of discussion when I talk about um, this book I wrote that you know talks about the, the theme of religion as it played into my life, right? So that this... Um, clash between an anxiety an anxious disposition and religious fervor and how those things collide to create a trauma but some people they, they i think read that as the indoctrination in itself is a trauma 
And to most people in, in my same situation, you know, I wasn't in a cult or anything like that. Most people did not perceive it as a trauma. So it was, it was very subjective in that sense. And I think there's a lot of things like that in, in modern society where everyone's kind of expected to go along with a th- thing. Cause it's like, it's not that bad, like suck it up. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you just, I don't know. I think from my perspective now, I I'm glad I have this appreciation of how differently people can be affected by things. And I understand, like, if somebody needs a, a, just a different way of experiencing something or going through something, like, I get it. We are not all the same. And um, some people, I, I think, just sort of assume that everyone is built like them. And I, I know that's not the case. Yeah. And when we're young, that is a normal way of thinking um, in, the, in the child mind is everyone thinks the way I think because they haven't, their brain hasn't grown to the point that they can understand other points of view. Um, so sometimes, you know, if a trauma does happen at a young age, they don't, they don't have that growth to then understand that there is different points of view. It's um, a good point. Yeah. I, I love psychology. It's just so interesting. I'm not a psychologist guys. This is just yeah. stuff that I've learned. Yeah, over I, the lo- years. I love armchair psychology too. <laughs> I mean, I went to school for it, but I, I did not like pursue a career in it. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Well, then you get a chair of higher stature than I do. Yeah, that. my chair has I a little just... more cushion in it than yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it doesn't come with any like piece of paper saying that I'm in. <laughs> right. You, you don't get the red couch and all that. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I read a bunch of psychology today during my 20s where I was living like an old man and uh, reading magazines and things like that. So. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And it changes as we learn things because... It's funny. My mom likes to say that, oh, how do they not know what's wrong with you? Because I've been having a lot of chronic pain and stuff like that. So how do they not know? You know, we've come so far with medicine. I'm like, but have we? Like, it seems like we have. But really, it wasn't that long ago that people were still being put into asylums. We're having lobotomies. Yeah. Like, isn't that crazy? Right. Yeah, there's still somebody in an iron lung. Like I think there's only one person yeah, left. I know. But yeah, th- he's fascinating. I, I've he is so I've watched some of his uh, his videos. I can't yeah. remember his name, but so fascinating. Yeah, he's an um, attorney. I think if we're yes. talking about the same guy. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So cool. So, as much as we think that medicine has come a long way, it, when we think back to people living in an iron lung and lobotomies happened in not in my life, but in like my grandparents' lifetime, it hasn't come that far. So there's so much more that we can still learn. So we have to keep reading the new stuff that comes out and learning the new things that come out. And that's why I love talking to different people because especially with the mental health side, it's all personal perspective because there is no, there's no test you can really do. There's no blood test to look for. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's one interesting thing about the society we live in is we're very, we have a very empirical mindset towards a lot of things. Like, like we have to have a, a default answer that is that we can treat as certain and, you know, we'll update the, uh, the material if, if something else supersedes it. But until then, it's like, we know, we know what, what our position is on this, but so much diagnostic stuff is based entirely on symptoms, which are, you know, obviously symptoms should be taken into account, but like, we're not talking about necessarily what part of the brain is operating in what way it's just kind of self-analysis and well here's what's worked for some people you know it's not 
it's not fine tuned at all. And there's still a lot of speculation around that. So I don't have an answer to that, but I certainly think some humility in, in those sort of matters is good where you can say, we're going to do our best here. We don't, uh, we don't have a cure all to everything. Exactly. It's, I just find it so interesting the way times have changed. Um, and I'm going to put in a little, little thing. Eventually, I'm, I have a new show coming out where I'm going to be talking about the history of mental health stuff. So like I was saying, lobotomies and things like that, the, the really crazy, weird history. Oh, I have to awesome. do a lot of research, so it's not ready yet. But it's I will definitely be subscribing to that. Yes. Um, so there, just had to throw that in. Um, yeah. Now in, well, you've kind of mentioned it, the OCD, and I haven't had a lot of people on the show talk about that. So can you share with us what it is for you? Sure, yeah, because there are many different manifestations of it. Um, so Tourette's syndrome, of course, is, uh, I guess people have different associations with that as well, but um, defined by nervous tics. Uh, the, the most culturally depicted, but probably least actually prevalent is the one where people just shout out profanity. Uh, I've, I've never witnessed that one. And quite honestly, it would have been pretty funny if I'd had that as a kid in my, in, in my setting. Uh, <laughs> but, but I did not, I just had, you know, uh, sounds and motions that I would make, um, constantly, you know, based on an internal algorithm that demanded certain numbers, you know, be, uh, accommodated and, you know, everything had to be counted symmetry created in, in everything. And, um, and I still have that part of me is still very active, but it's not, I, I don't manifest in such noticeable ways. Um, I think what distinguishes it, it is a type of OCD technically, I think if I was going to separate it out from the sort of OCD that you associate with like hand washing and orderliness is that Tourette's is more of like an OCD for people with uh, a, a hyper vivid imagination and they create like a backstory in their head for it where they wouldn't actually say that this is grounded in, lo in logic and a, a reason why I do it. But there is sort of like a, like a, um, an, an imaginary, like a, a very, I don't know, fantastic backstory that they thought was just sort of them like playing a game in their own mind. And then it became that the subconscious just took over and said, yeah, we're going to actually keep doing this here. <laughs> we're going to make you do it every, every three seconds. Uh, and you just can't, you can't turn off the, the machine once it's spinning. So, but there are, at least in my experience, things that you can do to, uh, to sort of subjugate that into less noticeable things. I, I very much sympathize with people who haven't been able to do that and, and they still, you know, are verbally or visibly uh, manifesting that. But uh, it, yeah, it creates a lot of, a lot of background noise either way. Okay. So I got two follow-up questions to that. Sure. So the first one is how, how was it growing up like that um, before you figured out the ways to kind of manage it? And then, of course, the follow-up is, what are the ways that you've learned to manage it? Yeah. Uh, well, it was very embarrassing for the, the, the first couple years where it was like, um, where it was really 
highly visible. I was probably about nine and 10. And, and that went along with just anxiety mounting about certain things in that environment that I, that I touched on. Um, and that, that's when it does set in for a lot of kids, you know, even, even kids who will sort of grow out of it often have, you know, some of the, some of these little neuroses around that age. Um, but for me, it was like, it, it was bad enough that every other kid is asking questions like, why are you doing that? Why are you making that sound? Why are you looking over there constantly? And, uh, and it was strange not having an explanation that made sense. You know, if I, if I, if I did something that I was like, I have a good reason for it, you know, I'd gladly explain it, but I didn't want to say I have a disorder. I hated, I just hated the, the word, the idea, all of it. Um, so I was very self-conscious about it. And ultimately I think that is what, uh, compelled me, even though it was sort of an energy drain to keep it on the DL. Um, a certain degree of embarrassment will force you to, to change. Uh, it is exhausting too. So like that, that masking behavior. Right. Right. So in that, yeah, it ends up being just as, just as draining as actually doing the thing. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe that's what would be a little different from how people perceive it and talk about it is the common thinking is someone with, with ticks can't help it. And it's like, you can't help the, the cause. You can't help the, the background noise that's in your head. But in my experience, I was able to channel it into other things. Um, it was probably a gradual process. You know, there was a point when I sort of forgot that I even had it. But okay. then when I, when I took inventory of myself, <laughs> I realized like, no, it's still, it's still going on. I'm still making these micro movements and um gesticulations that satisfy the the algorithm so so to put it you know literally like today um nowadays like I, i'm still constantly like shifting my my focus just a tiny bit uh like looking at things piecing together this like imaginary puzzle that has to fit a certain way um making little you know motions and contact points in my mouth and my fingers and everything but it just sort of looks like a dude with a lot of excess energy spazzing out <laughs> nothing nothing too uh startling okay and so for those listening that maybe are dealing with it what is something that you can say to them um, that might be helpful well as with a lot of things if you can um put aside the the embarrassment, which is easier said than done, but just just don't worry about how it's perceived and, and be prepared to just call it what it is. Like, oh yeah, I have this thing. Um, I think that that helps avoid the, the spiral effect, you know, because then that's obviously leading to more anxiety and making it worse mm -hmm. and worse. I would have said the same thing about acne in my teens. Like if I could have just, if I could just tell, my, tell myself 15 years ago, dude, it's not gonna matter in a little while just be yourself and roll with it. Like, yeah, right? would, have, would have saved me a lot of hardship. Um, so I would say the same thing to somebody in that situation. Uh, don't, don't be ashamed of it. Just let it, let it kind of happen. And um, of course that's incredibly difficult if you have a, a socially abnormal or taboo tick, but like, 
yeah and, and so i don't i don't want to go too far in saying that there's something that i that i that i know like a hack to stop it but um just what works for you yeah yeah try try to live a reasonably healthy life don't overdo it on the caffeine and uh try not to stress about it as much as possible there's there's better things to focus your energy on and maybe you will successfully channel all that energy into something productive like that's that's actually the best thing for for every mental health issue i've had is to have something that i that i feel like i'm actually working toward and making progress on because so much so much of those energy based conditions are just they come from a, a drive to actually like create efficiency and create order and and that it's just not quite satisfied in someone's life and environment yet and you can't you can't always create that immediately but if you take steps toward that if you find things that you enjoy you know that's going to satiate a lot of it and that's uh, that's probably why I'm su- such an obsessive creator, whether it's writing or you know making video or whatever. It just satisfies something in me. I I hear you on that one, which is why I keep coming up with new shows. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Eventually, I'll have a different show every day of the week. That is yeah. actually the goal. Um, we'll see how it goes. It'll I get there it. eventually. Yeah. Um, and talking about being creative and getting stuff done. What have you written? Well, uh, most recently, my book is a memoir that takes the the concept of uh, religious doctrine and examines it through the lens of my life and my personal experience. Uh, when I started writing, I wasn't I wasn't so sure that this would fall into the category of memoir. You know, I didn't okay. think that that talking about myself and my life experience was uh, so, you know, exciting that it would be worth reading about. But I realized that by discussing certain themes through that lens, I, I could, um, I, I could not only tell a story, but take some of the things that I've been through and try to make something constructive out of it. Because I think there's a lot of people who've had a similar upbringing and have a similar disposition and would identify with so many of the the very specific anxieties that I uh, that I chronicled here. Specifically, I mean, there's a type of OCD called scrupulosity, which affects kids who've been raised in a religious setting where they they fixate on the idea of um, salvation, whether that's purely about the afterlife or just about a sense of purity in general. And then there's this worldview that saturates them with that theme constantly and so it it really shapes the personality um because it feels like a valid thing to fixate on in fact sometimes it feels like the only valid thing to fixate on because you're talking about your own eternal soul here so it's pretty important (laughs) one would think right and and then when you put that in the context of like you're responsible for knowing something yeah, that's that's how I would define the religious mindset, right? When you are personally accountable for some sense of confidence or absolute belief or being on the right side of a of a partition, whether that's intellectual or moral or something, um, I mean that's that just creates the highest stakes you could possibly have. 
So while I had this, you know, very comfortable childhood and upbringing it, in, you know, on a surface level, it was like, I, I couldn't really imagine a worse dilemma to be in than the cosmic dilemma that I felt I was bound to. So I realized it's a very sensitive subject for a lot of people because for so many religion and faith is what's gotten them through certain traumas, right? So like, it's such a different thing to every person depending on their personality type and their personal struggles. But I felt that the, the specific way that it affects kids like myself who were kind of sheltered um, and you know went to church and were homeschooled and then had to figure out the world beyond all of that uh also throw in the 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 piece alluded to in the title swept up refers to the rapture whereby the believers would be suddenly scooped up into heaven um which was not a pleasant thing for me to look forward to um all of that all of that created a, a very unique but i think underrepresented anxiety uh, so that's what I set out to write about and to incorporate all of the things about about that world that are quite funny as well. You know, I think I, I, I think talking about a heavy subject through the lens of comedy can be effective. So that was yeah. that was my goal to keep it at least somewhat entertaining for the for the many people who don't you know live in that belief system or, or you know, that context. Um, tried to make it humorous and uh, relatable. I like that. And where do they, where do we pick up a copy of this? It is on Amazon in paperback and digital form, swept up lessons from the end times. Uh, I also had it recorded by a, a robotic algorithm that uses Snoop Dogg's voice. So if you, if you look me up on Spotify, you could find that as well. Oh, Under that's Matt, cool. Matt Garnier. Yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah, just to add a little more levity to it. <laughs> yep, yep. That's funny. I didn't know you could do that. That's hilarious. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I got like just kind of a sample membership of the of the service and then spent about eight hours recording my screen and then editing out or editing the parts where he couldn't get the uh <laughs> the pauses or the pronunciations quite right. Yes, yeah. That's awesome. I kinda wanna go and listen to that. Just even just for yeah, like just a give, hot give second. It a few minutes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that would be very funny. Um, and where do we follow you? Uh, most social media, Instagram and Facebook under my name. Uh, Instagram is mattgarnier.0. YouTube is probably where you get the best sample of my, of my work, uh, the many cross sections of it. Uh, that's also under my name, Matt Garnier. And uh, yeah, it's about all I got. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today. Oh, thank you for sharing this platform. I love what you're doing. Thanks. As always, thank you so much for the amazing guests that we have on the show. Um, be sure to check out their links down in the description below. If you want to support the channel, go ahead and check out our merch store. We've got some very cool things on there. That's my favorite. Sorry, I'm busy ending the stigma. Um, but there's some other very cool designs. 10% of the proceeds always goes back to the Canadian Mental Health Association. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at RB Media because we have some great new shows coming up and you never want to miss any of those episodes. And remember, the only way to end the stigma of mental health is to speak openly and honestly. Bye!